Hi, this is Chris Date, and you're listening to the The Apologetics Podcast, Episode 28, Testify. Today's interview is with Jim Wallace of PleaseConvinceMe.com to talk about the reliability of the Gospels as eyewitness testimonies of Jesus Christ. First, I want to announce that as of Friday the 28th, I'm an uncle to a brand spanking new baby boy named Caleb. Uh, as some of you who are my friends on Facebook might know, the delivery didn't go terribly smoothly. The uh, umbilical cord was wrapped around the baby's neck, so every time he dropped, he would start to choke. But the emergency C-section they did uh, went fine, and now baby and mom are recovering. So thank you to all of you who prayed for them that day, and, and just please pray for the family as this is their first child. And speaking from experience, it can be quite a challenging uh, experience learning how to raise a child, even when you've got a couple of awesome parents to emulate, like my wife and I. <laughs> uh, no, I'm just kidding. But in any case, in, in, in case they're listening, I just want to say congratulations to my awesome sister-in-law and to one of my best friends going on over 15 years now. Uh, I can't tell you how happy I am for you. Now, the other thing I want to mention uh, is that I've felt very convicted lately to look into getting an education, something like an undergraduate degree in Christian studies, followed by a master's in theology. Uh, I'm very thankful for what God has taught me informally by blogging and doing this podcast and just studying on my own. But I really think that a formal education would benefit me in ways which self-study just isn't able to. Also, my hope is one day to be able to move into ministry full-time as a teacher of theology and apologetics or something like that, and I think that I'll be much more prepared and qualified uh, to teach in an official capacity once I've been educated, and doors will open to ministry that wouldn't open without those degrees. Um, now, unfortunately, I don't know how I will be able to afford an education, or, you know, financially speaking, or how I would have the time to give it the focus it needs since I can't. I can't afford to give up my full-time job and, and, and stop taking care of my family. Beyond that, I'd need to find a good, solid, accredited school which offers degrees through distance learning, since it seems to me that none of the schools physically located here in Washington State are of the caliber that I prefer. Now, I say all that in the hope that you would occasionally keep me in your prayers. Um, ask, ask God to direct my steps and open doors to an education if that's his will for me. And also that that he would help me to be content with whatever his will turns out to be, even if that means not getting an education as I currently desire to do. Uh, either way, in the meantime, I'm just going to try and bloom where I'm planted, as Greg Kokel has said, and to be a $1 apologist, as my guest today, Jim Wallace, often says. If podcasting is the extent of my ministry indefinitely, you know, that's okay with me, and I'll continue to do my best to faithfully serve the Lord through this microphone. Uh, but But please do pray. Now, next up in my promo rotation is the Unbelievable Radio Program with Justin Brierley. You're unbelievable. Okay, so you've got their book, read their blog, and downloaded their talks, but where can you hear the arguments of your favorite defenders of faith actually being put forward in the context of a live radio debate? Only one place. Unbelievable is the show and podcast that brings together Christians and non-Christians to discuss apologetics, the Bible, philosophy, God, science, evolution, design, different worldviews and ethics every single week. How can the text of the Bible be authoritative 
if we can't agree on what the text was. Bart's position is that we don't have the original writings. I would say that we do. We don't have the original copies, but we do have the original writing. Professor Dawkins and others acknowledge that there is no evolutionary explanation for the origin of the first life. That caused being agency or mind. God. Do you mean God when you say I agency? God, is a, God, I mean God. Is a, I think it's a likely candidate. But Most atheists feel if life is eternal, then life is cheap. Jesus talked about life in all its fullness. And life in all its fullness requires um, a relationship with the person who called us into existence. I'm Justin Briley, the host of the show, and I'd like to encourage you to tune in to cutting-edge apologetics debate from the heart of London, England at premier.org.uk forward slash unbelievable. You can download the podcast, join the forum, and get in touch wherever you are around the world. That's Unbelievable, the show that brings together Christians and non-Christians, podcasting every Saturday at premier.org.uk forward slash unbelievable. You're unbelievable. I highly recommend Unbelievable. Uh, you can check it out at www.premier.org.uk forward slash unbelievable. I'll include a link in my show notes. Uh, and, and you can download the podcast there and take advantage of a number of other resources Justin has made available to you. In every episode of the show, Justin has Christians and non-Christians on to debate a wide variety of topics. And I think that you'll find the show is very challenging and thought-provoking in a very good way. And I'm sure that you'll grow in your faith and understanding of the faith as a result of listening. Uh, and in case you're a newer listener to my show and aren't aware, uh, Justin appeared on my show a while back in episode 13 to talk about how hosting his show has impacted his faith. So I definitely recommend that you check that out. So with that, let's move into today's interview. I'm excited to be joined today by Jim Wallace, creator of PleaseConvinceMe.com, to discuss the reliability of the Gospels as eyewitness accounts of Jesus. Thanks so much for joining me today, Jim. So glad to be here, Chris. Now, I've got to get this out of the way first. You've got a peculiar theme to your wall photos on Facebook. <laughs> What's the story behind those? Oh, uh, you know, it started off, uh, you've interviewed Brett Kunkel on your show before, and uh, about a year ago, I think one of his, I actually met the gentleman who did it, somebody who was in one of his presentations, um, uh, for him did a, uh, Photoshop of him in, uh, 300. So, uh, he put it on his Facebook, you know, and I've been a friend of Brett's for a long time and he was in our church and so I, I said, well, I actually took that photo off and I re-photoshopped it, a little less flattering, and I sent it to him just to kind of tease him. And uh, so that kind of got us thinking about these Photoshop deals. And then about a month later, my son, uh, David, was getting ready to go to Winter Formal, and it was uh, a quantum of solace was the theme for this particular dance. And so I ended up uh, photoshopping him and changed it to quantum of Wallace instead of quantum of solace. <laughs> And he got a kick out of it, and he used it on his. And so that kind of started this process of doing these stupid uh, movie posters, and we've just been doing them ever since. And so, yeah, I, I have a number of movie posters that I've kind of taken and <laughs> co-opted for our own use. And it kind of started off between Brett and this thing with this winter formal dance. So yeah. that's how it started, yeah. Well, it's definitely it's hilarious. And, uh, you know, listeners, you should, uh, you know, befriend Jim Wallace on Facebook and check him out. They're, they're awesome. Um well, one of the things that I think that makes you really unique amongst Christian apologists is your career as a cold case homicide detective. And if you don't mind, I'd like it if you'd tell us about how you got into that profession and what kind of work that entails. 
Well, my, my father was, um, for, you know, 30 years worked at the police department and worked through detectives and I, I grew up watching him work homicides and so ultimately, you know, I went to school for a number of other things in design, but I ended up coming out and at the age of 27, uh, becoming a police officer. And then after you go through that process, there's lots of different directions you can take in law enforcement. You can you promote through the ranks. You can, uh, number of specialty details that are available to you. And I, I kind of ended up in, uh, um, investigations because I really enjoyed the case making aspect of doing these kinds of things. And I worked robbery homicide for a, a period of time. And in, in those days, we had a number of cold case homicides, but you know, very few agencies across the country, I mean very few, actually have a dedicated cold case team, and we didn't mm-hmm. have one either. So we, all of us just took them kind of as collateral duties, and um, those of us who were able to push a couple across the, across the finish line uh, ended up being more and more interested in this, and so finally when they did uh, create this cold case team, I was placed in it along with one other partner, and I've been working them now full time for about I think four years. But we've been working cold cases as a collateral duty for about I think I want to say twelve, maybe more, twelve or fourteen, so, somewhere in that range. So that's kind of how uh, I got started and, and how I ended up here. And I think there are some, like you said, it's it's interesting because what you do in cold cases is you investigate uh, a, an event from the distant past that uh, for which there are no living eyewitnesses or it wouldn't be cold, but there may be a great um, number of circumstantial reasons to believe a particular suspect did the crime. Mm-hmm. So you're puzzling these circumstantial pieces together and making a case for why something is true that happened in the distant past. And this is the same thing that I try to do when looking at the event of the life of Christ. Uh, you know, there's lots of good arguments for theism, but in the end, <clears throat> those arguments that we typically understand as the kind of classic arguments for the existence of God, you know, the cosmological argument, the axiological argument, the teleological argument, all these arguments that we typically recognize, they don't bring you <clears throat> to Christianity uh, per se. They bring you to uh, to some form of theism. In the end, the thing that will drive you across the finish line of Christianity has got to be the life of Jesus and how reliable uh, those eyewitness accounts are or, or aren't. So that's uh, that's one of the things that was very important to me as I became a Christian. Well, let's talk about that for a second. Um, you know, I was aware that you haven't always identified yourself as a Christian. Can you tell us about your story before Christ and what led you to devote your life to him? Is there, uh, you know, a, a connection there to the kind of mindset you have as part of your career? Well, I, I'm, um, I was an atheist, a pretty angry atheist until I was about 35. And so I've been a Christian about 15 years. Um, and uh, I was... I think a pretty well-read, thoughtful atheist who had lots of discussions with coworkers who were either benign on the issue, didn't really care, or I had a few. Uh, there were a few there who were Christians who would engage me one way or the other. And I found that our conversations were really not satisfying from, from my perspective because I was um, an evidentialist. I would actually argue, though, that every one of us is an evidentialist. Um, but for me, in particular, in the place where I was, I mean, um, most police officers after a certain amount of time are relatively uh, skeptical about everything, uh, skeptical about people for sure, because that serves you so well when you're a police officer. If you're walking up on a guy in a car and you assume he's going to kill you or try to kill you, you're probably going to go home that night without any harm. If you assume he's just a guy who ran a red light and he's just a regular citizen, you may get um, you know, taken advantage of because you mm. aren't on, on guard. Your skepticism yeah. is not up. So you, you find yourself being very skeptical of people and of what people say, claims, truth claims. You're, you just are more, I think, 
pessimistic and, and you're usually end up as a kind of a glass half empty kind of a person who is on his guard all the time so he won't be taken advantage of and that's kind of where I came from and and most of the discussions I had with my friends who were Christians were uh, really not with Christians who could make a case for what it is they believe they 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 believed it and they believed it sincerely but they were um, unable to defend or at least respond to some of the obje- common objections that I had hmm. uh, and so they didn't really move the ball forward very much for me um, now how it is that I became uh, a Christian I think you know one of the arguments that most of us as evidentialists on this side those of us who do this kind of work who would call ourselves evidentialists is that we kind of run afoul of of those folks who might call themselves presuppositionalists and I, I don't really think that um, that's the case uh, it should needs to be the case but hmm. I can understand why some people would feel that way, but I, I'm very, very much of the uh, belief, and I think it's scriptural, that uh, my coming to faith it was not a re- the result of my uh, figuring it out. It wasn't the result of my uh, puzzling through. I, I had an enmity toward God that had to be removed first, hmm. and that enmity doesn't wasn't something that I could remove. It was something that God has to remove, and um, so for me, my my journey was not one where I, you know had a problem marriage or had problem children or had a problem in my career. Everything was going splendidly. And uh, I had been with my wife for, you know, at the time probably, let's see, uh, 15 years, uh, 16 years. And I uh, had a great marriage, had great kids. Uh, and, uh, my career was, was was wonderful. I enjoyed my work. But on a Saturday, um, and uh, it, it came to everyone's surprise, I decided I wanted to go to church the next day. And uh, there was really no reason to, to go. Um <laughs> I just decided, hey, I'm gonna let's let's go to church tomorrow. And my wife was shocked by it, and we looked around <laughs> to see what we were gonna where we're gonna go, where we didn't know where to go. But we had a friend who had asked us to go for several years to a local church here, and I had been putting him off and hadn't really talked to him in probably a year or a year and a half about it. But I called him up and said, hey, you still going to that church? And we met him the next day, and um, that kind of began the journey. Hmm. So, yeah, that's that's good. Um, you know, you mentioned in, in the previous question about um, how uh, we, you know, you make a case, you're, you're a case maker in, in your career, and you mentioned that there was a carryover when it comes to defending the faith. So my question for you now is, what sorts of specific traits and skills that you've acquired and honed as a cold case homicide detective carry over uniquely to life as a Christian and, a, and an apologist? Well, I think that all of us, um, if we're honest with how it is we we assess every single aspect of our day. We're all great case makers. We're all people who take in uh, evidence and uh, look at the possible uh, explanations for that evidence and then make a choice about what's true and false. I mean, about everything, about your personal relationships, about your situation in your job today, about what it is your boss really meant when he said that yesterday. All these are things that we look at, the evidence of what was said, and we look at the possibilities of what it could have meant, and then we try to make the best inference we can from the evidence in front of us. It's a process that detectives call abduction, that we understand uh, that, that this is how it works, but it's not just us as detectives who actually use the process. Now, there are some distinct tools you can use. I mean, I think that that one of the tools we use is we are very careful um, at assembling and understanding the strength of evidence and what the differences between direct evidence and circumstantial evidence, and we don't minimize the value of circumstantial evidence. We understand that, well, I understand, particularly I've never made a, a cold case homicide. I've never gone to trial on anything other than a circumstantial case. And we've convicted every one of these guys so far. So I think the, the issue is that, that a lot of people, when you talk about the case for Christianity, would argue that, you know, it's, 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 it's all circumstantial because you don't have living eyewitnesses today. 
You've got to even make a case for what these uh, gospels, if they are in fact eyewitness accounts, you've even got to make a case for that. So people look at it and say, gosh, you know, I would need something that's a piece of direct physical evidence, a direct piece of evidence before I could ever... Well, you know, that's the standard. No jury would ever be able to find a defendant guilty because mm. the vast majority of cases across America are made on circumstantial evidence. Yeah. So understanding that's helpful, uh, being able to piece together puzzles circumstantially, understanding the power of a cumulative case, that's helpful. I think also looking at uh, statements that are made by witnesses and understanding how to to kind of parse them out from a forensic statement analysis perspective is very helpful. Uh, it's very similar to kind of a very strict exegetical study of Scripture. There are some tools that are similar uh, that I actually employed right away when I was uh, just first coming to faith to see if the gospel accounts were, in fact, eyewitness accounts. Hmm. So so those are some of the tools that I think I've tried to use um, over the years to just really, to, it, everything I've done as far as an apologist online and uh, on podcasts and things like that. It's not as though I'm, I'm just simply, um, uh, journeying along in my own personal walk and I've just opened the doors to my walk to others to see if it helps them. It's not as though I'm, my goal is, um, as anything other than that. I mean, I still have these questions. If I'm talking about it on a podcast or I'm writing about it on a website, it's because I'm trying to resolve the issue. I'm trying to sort through the evidence for myself. Hmm. And as I sort through it, I have a certain then level of comfort about where it is I've landed and then I post it. Not as though I'm trying to find, I'm looking out there and saying, well, hey, that guy believes this, so I'm going to do something slightly different. I, that's not my goal. My only goal is to, to walk through this evidentially. Each and There's so much to examine. You yeah. can spend your entire life examining it. So I'm just examining each issue and then posting it for people. Well, let's talk about where you do that. Uh, what's the story behind pleaseconvinceme.com? What's, you've kind of talked about its mission, but what, what led you to start it? Well, we started it because I was a youth pastor at the time. I got saved, and then within five years, I was in seminary. And then it takes took so you know it took a lot, a lot of years to get out of seminary because yeah. I was working full time. So I graduated from Golden Gate Baptist Theological and ended up over uh, at a local church serving as its youth pastor with high schoolers. My kids were also high schoolers at the time, so it was a great uh, kind of uh, symbiotic relationship. And and it was a, a wonderful time. I can remember those four years were really great and. And during that time, we would um, train up our kids. The first year we we worked in a youth ministry, I noticed that it wasn't my ministry. For all, I only had it for about three or four months. And I noticed that those kids who were seniors when they graduated uh, walked away from their faith in vast numbers. I mean, I think all but one uh, ended up in places like Berkeley and Sonoma, other places here in California that are less in uh, less um, are more inclined to be a somewhat hostile to the Christian worldview. And they got up there and they were convinced at some point that this wasn't true, and they walked away from their faith. Mm-hmm. And so I felt like, okay, that, that this, there's and that first year, I really was swayed largely by um, the design background I have. And I did a lot of uh, Sunday experiences that were very experiential, and they were very much rooted in the arts and rooted in an experience, uh, either musically or uh, visually. And uh, that was kind of just, I was I was reading people at the time that I felt uh, this must be, I didn't know anything about youth ministry. I just knew what it was to be a cop. And so I was kind of swayed by some of those people who have written in this area that uh, took that approach. And when I saw that first class graduate and walk away, I said, okay, I'm going back to being Jim. <laughs> and I just became a case maker for the next three years, and I decided we're going to teach these kids theology and philosophy and apologetics, and and uh, we got to find a way to do it that is um, engaging for them, that is um, challenging for them, hmm. uh, that some, some way that will, they'll wake them up and they'll say, hey, you know, 
I got to study this. And uh, so what we did was we took him on missions trips, and we took him on a trip to Utah in the summer, and that teaches theology because you're dealing with a very refined heresy. Oh, yeah. Uh, very well-established heresy, and you're, and you're in a place where you can drive 12 hours and be in the heart, the mecca of that worldview in Salt Lake City. So we would go to Salt Lake City and, and just pour our kids into this for a week, and we would train for eight weeks before we got there. On the back side of that, you have kids that are very rooted in orthodoxy. They understand how to make a defense for the triune God. They understand lots of things that before that trip they weren't even interested in. And then we did the same thing in uh, in uh, February. We're getting ready to go again here in a couple of weeks with Sean McDowell. Um, we did the same thing. We took a trip to Berkeley. And we would take kids up to Berkeley, and we would train for eight weeks prior to that on atheism and philosophy and all kinds of secular worldview issues. And then we get up there, and we invite all the best atheists from the area, the Bay Area, to come in and talk to our kids. And it's really a challenge for them. But at the end of that trip, they're prepared to deal with uh, secular humanism and, and uh, philosophical naturalism in a way that they didn't even knew those, knew those, know those things actually existed before <laughs> before yeah. that trip. So we took those two trips. Now, long story short on that, I, I had one year I was up in uh, Utah. And we were working with a guy who uh, I really like. Um, he uh, has a website dealing with Mormonism. It's called josephlied.com. Okay, now I don't know if he still has this website or not, but at the time he would walk on the streets, carry the big sign that said josephlied.com. That that really draws a lot of uh, fire, uh, of course, <laughs> as you can imagine in sure. that setting. And and we were, I was actually a little bit uncomfortable, um, although I saw some great conversations uh, actually evolve. Uh, it started off angry and then ended up being very deep and very robust conversations about theology. But for me, that's just not who I am. As an atheist, that would have just offended me to no end. So uh, I, I took a different approach. I said, we need to find a, 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 create a site that will express what we're here and, and what it is we believe is true, but is not as offensive as josephlied.com. So we started looking for things that were more uh, question uh, or more ingratiating, a little more open, and Please Convince Me was uh, that what we ended up with. So that first year, Please Convince Me was probably 90% Mormonism. That's what mm. we talked about because we were only using it. You know, we put the sign on the on the ground. That's a smaller sign. Just said, "Please convince me." People would walk up and say, "Please convince you of what?" And we'd <laughs> say, "Well, just convince us that, that Mormonism is true because we're not quite sure why anybody would believe it's true." Mm. And that's how conversations would start. And uh, that was a great uh, uh, tool for us. But of course, as we started going to Berkeley, and my background as an atheist, I see I, I came from a family where my stepmother, uh, uh, who I've had since I was five, uh, was Mormon, and she has had six kids with my dad, and they are all raised in the Mormon Church. So I had a background both as an atheist and and this part of my family that was exposed to Mormonism, and so those are the two areas that I typically deal with on pleaseconvinceme.com. But I would say now it's probably like a ninety ten uh, atheism to Mormonism mix. Mm-hmm. So. So that's, that's where we're at, and that's what, why, uh, how that kind of evolved. And now, pleaseconvinceme.com is where most of our work. We just launched a new site, um, kind of a sister site to it, called AnswersForAtheist.com, and that's a website that is really designed just to give uh, Christians um, 500 word or to 600 word responses to the major objections of atheists, so that the conversation can move forward. Yeah. And so that'll eventually have the top 150 objections of atheists answered. In a way that hopefully will be helpful to other Christians who are looking to move their conversations forward. Yeah, so, definitely. So that's our goal. Anyway, so that's what our, our, our kind of our, our uh, internet presence is all about. Yeah, well, I definitely recommend that my listeners check those out. 
And one of the things that you talk about at pleaseconvinceme.com with some amount of frequency and that we're going to talk about today is the reliability of the Gospels. Um, you've got a series at your uh, website called The Power of the Book, and you open the series with a quote that, I, mean, I don't know if this is a quote that you personally heard, but it's definitely something that a skeptic might say, which is, earlier you said that it is reasonable to turn to the Bible as a source of truth, but I don't necessarily believe that at all. I think that the Bible is simply the work of men, and we all know that it has been altered over time, mistranslated, and is filled with contradictions. Now, I think that this quote summarizes well why this is an area of study that we Christians should have some familiarity with. Tell us why you think it's important that we be able to demonstrate the reliability of the Gospels and, of course, the Bible as a whole. Yeah, and that, that actually is my, you know, those are my objections. Those are the things that I would have said, um, you know, not too many years ago. Um, and so that's why those first pages, those those um, introductory pages to each section are really kind of the conversations that I would have um, with people about these issues. And, and everyone knows that the Bible is full of contradictions. And <laughs> it's because, you know, these are the kinds of arguments, you know, that we would that we would typically um, have to approach. And at some point, I do think it's important for us to, to be able to cross those bridges with people. Uh, and so that's why, you know, I, th- I think that this is the issue of, I mean, there's lots of things about uh, you and I, even if we may disagree on all kinds of different doctrinal issues uh, that are secondary, that are not essentials, there are some essentials we'd have to agree on. Yeah. And for me, uh, the reliability of the scriptures is is huge. Now, look, we may disagree about certain aspects of scripture, certain areas in the scripture. We may try to figure it out and we're doing our best to figure it out using the, the gifts that we have or the tools that we have. We might come to different conclusions. But the idea really is essential, I think, that we, if we can't trust, uh, just look at it from strictly a New Testament perspective for a second. And we talked about how we can make a case for theism, and that case for theism really doesn't bring us to the cross yet. What has to bring us to the cross is how reliable we believe those New Testament documents are. Are they late? Are they uh, um, uh, missing pieces or are there late additions that we can't trust? Did, did they actually come into existence in the lifetime of the eyewitnesses? Are those people really eyewitnesses? These are areas that we really have to, bridges we have to cross if we're going to make the step from theism. So, for example, someone like Antony Flew, despite Gary Habermas's best uh, efforts, uh, never moved from deism to Christianity, even though he certainly moved from atheism to deism, right? Mm. So... So he felt that the, the that the, the the argument was very powerful, especially from what he saw was uh, information in the DNA uh, genome. He thought that was very powerful evidence, and, and so he moved uh, toward the direction of theism. But uh, it, he had would have to have some confidence about the eyewitness reliability of the Gospels before he could make the next step. And I'll, I'll tell you something, Chris. That's what was, did it for me. I, when I first walked into a church. The church I walked into, I didn't end up staying in for very long, but but that church was a, a place where the pastor there um, was able to convince me that this Jesus guy was really smart <laughs> and had a lot to say that might speak to my own life. So it was very much kind of still, I was still, it's all about me at this point. Okay, It was still right. really all about my own desire to find out what would help me. It's all about Jim still. But it caused me to read through the, the, the Gospels to see what it was that, Jesus had to say about me, you know, still self-focused. But I had to at least then um, evaluate, you know, there's a lot of other claims in the scripture too, and I'm not going to be able to pick through these. If it's either all correct or it's it's all incorrect, I can't, if it's, if it's half and half, how would I know which half is good and which half is bad? Right. So I had to really test the, so the first thing I did was a forensic statement analysis of the Gospel of Mark to see if it really was Peter's eyewitness account. And there are lots of internal reasons uh, from a forensic perspective that I think it is, in fact, Peter's account. And once I became um, confident 
that these were not uh, narratives that were uh, fictional. These were actual eyewitness accounts. I started to have confidence in the scripture. So I think that all of us have a duty, at least for ourselves. By the way, Chris, you know for a fact that that, that people are, uh, whatever it is you're most convicted about, you're most likely to act on. That's true. And so I think we see apathy in the church because we see that people are not convicted. They're not convinced to the level they ought to be, given the evidence that's been presented to us. And so once you're convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt, evidentially, I think you're far more likely to say, okay, now what do I do with this? It's not a matter of my opinion. It happens to be the, 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 the actual cure. It's not a, you know, it's not a matter of what I, I love, love meringue pie. It's a matter <laughs> of, it's a matter of, you know, this is, I always use this analogy, you know, like, can you imagine if, um, every day you get up and you have your half a grapefruit and aspirin, you just have that as a matter of course, as you've always done it. And then you discover about 10 years into doing this that, gosh, you know, I don't think I've aged at all. Um, and, and at some point, 15 years later, you haven't aged for 25 years, you realize it's the half a grapefruit and the aspirin that's been keeping you from aging. Would you, given that that's true and you now know it's true, would you share that with anybody? Of course. Yeah. But there's some people, Chris, if you're honest, you wouldn't share it with yeah. because you don't really want to be with them. <laughs> that's true. Yeah. So I think you've got to examine this kind of truth in that same way. So that's why I, we started this whole section on the Bible and on Jesus Christ and doctrine. Those sections are really there to give people conviction about what they believe so they'll move on it. Yeah, and I think that that's going to go to this this next question. You know, you mentioned uh, kind of a controversial debate between um, people who are uh, evidentialists when it comes to apologetics and those who are presuppositionalists. And you know, I've I've got my feelings, and 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 I don't want to get caught in the crossfire. But but the question that I have for you is, what value can someone sympathetic to a presuppositional presuppositional approach like myself find in being able to defend the reliability of Scripture? Well, let's, let's clarify what, what you mean uh, by presuppositional. Uh, tell me what it is you think about presuppositionalism, at least in apologetics, that is um, in conflict with an evidential approach. Well, let me just tell you how I think that a presuppositionalist would put it, because I'm still new to it. But but my understanding is they would say that if we um, if if evidence is um, where our focus lies, then all that we're doing is really appealing to a person's autonomy, their own ability to say, to examine the evidence and come to a conclusion. But the Bible describes the, the human nature as being opposed to God. And so therefore, um, you know, if, if we're relying on human autonomy, then we're never really uh, making God our Lord. You know, we're, we're still making ourselves the authority. I think that that's kind of the, the line that they would take. Okay, so from just from a practical perspective, though, as a presuppositionalist, then, what would the approach be to sharing uh, the truth of the Christian worldview? Would you share it at all? Or would you just think that, no, God can, I don't need to open my mouth here. If God wants that person to believe that Christianity is true or believe that Jesus is his Savior, he can do it without any other tools. Not even a scripture is needed. No, what, no. What, what, would be, what would be the approach of the your, the practical uh, kind of fleshing out of that? What would be the practical response? Well, I think that the presuppositionalist, uh, you know, I certainly have names in mind. I'm not going to mention, but I think that what they sure. would say is um, uh, that we ought to demonstrate that the presupposition that the theist, that the God of the Bible exists, is necessary to account for the very idea of evidence to begin with, among other things. Uh, okay. No, I would agree with that. But how would you do that? That's my question. Well, uh, they would say if there, if we don't presuppose that God exists, um, then why would we assume that we, that, that the, that the process of reasoning, um, based on logic would have any, uh, universal applicability, for example? Um, so why, just because we say that A cannot both be A and not A at the same time, are we really warranted in assuming that and other lines of reasoning, um, if we don't right. presuppose that God exists? 
Okay, now my question is, would you would you ever open your Bible to think at some point and share the Bible with anybody? Oh yeah, presuppositionalists would 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 say that uh, Scripture is the authority, and we must right. Yeah. And actually, that was they would say. I think, from my my uh, dealing with folks in the same regard, would be that this is really the 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 tool that God intends us to use yes. is Scripture. Now, my question is, what is Scripture? What uh, are the Gospels, if not eyewitness accounts? Well, if they're eyewitness accounts, they're the first and foremost type of evidence we use in a court of law. That has always been considered to be the most, you know, direct, for example, most direct evidence is typically in the form of eyewitness accounts. Hmm. So it's considered to be a very powerful, so here's what we're saying. We're saying, I, I, whatever it is you're going to use, if you're going to open that Bible, you're going to use what John and Peter identified themselves as eyewitness testimony. We didn't imagine this stuff, and we're not making it up. We were eyewitnesses who actually sat there, saw it, touched it. We're not making clever stories here. Hmm. So you're, in essence, now you're using eyewitness testimony to make a case as a presuppositionalist. You're still stuck with evidence. Hmm. You're still using the evidence. See, I would agree, absolutely agree, that I, I, I had no power to even look at this evidence. I rejected it out of hand. I always did. I rejected it with vigor because I had an enmity toward God that would not even allow me the clarity to even see what is spiritually true. God had to remove that enmity first. But once he did that, what is the mechanism by which he's even going to share the truth with me? What's the mechanism by which I'm going to receive any truth? It's through the special revelation of God in Scripture. Absolutely. But those are eyewitness accounts. And that is the primary way in which the canon of the New Testament canon was formed to begin with. Were these folks really there and saw Jesus to begin with? Or did they have access to the eyewitnesses like Luke? And so the second and third generation Gospels don't get in because they know the early editions. Hmm. And everybody knew the early editions. So I want just the eyewitness account. I think in the end, my whole point is that it's, it's impossible to reject the use of evidence in either one of these systems hmm. because the scripture itself is evidential. Hmm. So unless we're willing to say, well, hey, the only way you can come to faith is without anything offered evidentially, including scripture, because it's evidential. God's got to bring you there without anything. Then we're in a true position where God's doing all the work. I think what God has done is, for whatever reason, the same way he's used the disciples at the feeding of the 5,000, he's decided that you and I are going to be involved in the process, Mm. that you're going to share your faith with somebody because there's something he wants to do in the life of you and I. And I think also, if you look at how I look at this, is if we look at the Scripture, there seems to be a tug-of-war between those passages that either presuppose that we have the ability to make some kind of choice. Um, when when uh, Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty eight, come to me all you who are weary, he seems to be uh, assuming that we can come. And I think we see a lot of that. If anyone chooses to do God's will, it says in John seven seventeen, you see there's some choice it seems. But at the same time, I recognize that scripture is replete with evidence that, that we're incapable of choosing God. So we've got to kind of figure out, you see it, I mean, you can go on and on about that, right? <laughs> yeah. So how is it that there's this, there's this, both of these truths can be possible? I, well, I think it's because, um, God does something to change our very nature so that we are not hostile we are, and that, uh, once he's done that, and only if he's done that, can we even begin to examine anything he's offered before us. And the scripture itself, and this is the case I've always made, 
uh, is that those gospels aren't just fancy tales that God's going to use. They're eyewitness accounts. Mm-hmm. So again, God's using what? So this is why it makes sense when Jesus says, hey, if you don't believe uh, in what I'm telling you, at least to believe on the evidence of the miracles themselves. Yeah. And stays with the disciples for 40 days in Acts 1. It says, giving them many convincing proofs that he was resurrected. And why is he doing it? Because it's on the basis of evidence that God uses evidence after he's done something to change the nature of each of us so that we will receive the evidence. So it's a combination of both these processes, I think. So, I, for example, I would say that you and I, as we share evidence with folks who are not, God has not done the work in their hearts to make them even uh, um, accept, accept um, receptive to the evidence. But at some point when God does that, they will look back in their memory and say, you know, Chris had that conversation with me last year, and now that makes sense to me. Hmm. The reason why it makes sense to him is not because suddenly he's smart and articulate and he can figure things out. It's because God has done something now so that that evidence actually resonates. Hmm. So I do think there's a, there's a compatibility uh, here between these two systems, unless you can show me how the presuppositionalist is able to use no evidence at all. <laughs> yeah. And it seems to me that I don't think he can do it. No, if, I, if in fact the eyewitness accounts are evidence. Yeah, no, I I generally agree with you, and and you know I appreciate you you know letting me put you on the spot, and I kind of enjoyed being put on the spot myself. But uh, uh, you know what what really struck me from from the previous question I asked you is is you you talked about the the um, confidence that we can have when we can see the reliability of the gospels, and that's really um, where I think a presuppositionalist also can get a lot of value from this kind of study is because we become even further convinced, further confident that that the that the eyewitness accounts are in fact reliable. So um, yeah, no, yeah. I- I tell you, I don't, I don't think that you're absolutely right. I don't think that this is, and I used to think, gosh, wouldn't it be great if in fact, um, wouldn't it be great if in fact, um, uh, this kind of a site could, could bring a number of atheists to the same place I'm, and I don't think that's how it, how it works. I think God does that, but when He does that, the same way when I first got saved, I started an intense investigation. Uh, because it was clear that God had opened my eyes to something, and then I wanted to see everything that had been written. Of course, it started with Scripture. So I looked at the scripture as the same kind of evidence I would look at other people's writings. Of course, I thought it, saw it as, as um, uh, I mean, not not in the sense I'm trying to, to equate scripture with the writings of someone like Greg or sure. other folks you've interviewed. But but clearly, I wanted to see how other people had addressed some of the concerns that I had as an atheist and how they had moved forward. And I think that's that's where God uses people like like you and I as apologists. And you're absolutely right. It's 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 probably it used to be that I used to say, hey, wouldn't it be great if I could help? Um, a thousand atheists this year uh, see the truth of the Christian worldview. Well, you know, that's not going to happen probably. Mm. But I'll tell you what would be great, even better, wouldn't it be great if I could keep 10,000 young Christians from walking away for a lie, from walking away to something that's not even true? So in the end, the kingdom difference is 10,000, whereas the other direction that the kingdom difference is 1,000. I think the value of what you and I do now is to help young people understand how true this is, how it can be defended evidentially, so they won't walk away from the truth for a lie. Yeah, yeah, I definitely agree. Well, okay, so let's dive in then. Um, and, and I want to start. I'm going to go through a few claims that I've seen made by skeptics when it comes to the uh, to the gospels. And the first one is is that the gospels, the authors of the gospels, aren't really known at all. Uh, here's a quote that I found from a guy named Randall Helms in, a, in something he called uh, he wrote called "Who Wrote the Gospels." He said the gospels are so anonymous that their titles, all second century guesses, are all four wrong. Christians in the second century possessing anonymous manuscripts and eager to give names to them fastened upon four historical figures, uh, obviously Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Well, so Helms goes on to summarize the implications of 
among other things, the alleged unknown identities of the gospel authors by saying the real Jesus is unknown and unknowable. So how do you respond to this? Do we have reason to believe that we can know with some measure of assurance whose eyewitness accounts are in fact recorded in the gospels? Yeah, I think we do. I mean, I think that that's, that's one of those places where, um, when someone makes a claim like that, and I think Greg is great at articulating the tactical approach here, uh, Greg Kokel at Standard Reason. I think one of the things you get to do in looking at this is you gotta say, okay, you've made some great claims. You've made a number of really specific claims. And, and okay, given you've made these claims, that the Gospels are anonymous, that they're all second century guesses, I would ask, well, how, why do you believe that's true? Well, you know, what, it's two, two first Columbo questions we always talk about. Are, what do you mean by that? And second, why, why do you believe that? And so I want to see where that comes from. But for me, I'm looking at it right away and saying, okay, I want to know, for example, let's take Mark. Mark is, uh, is often uh, kind of seen as the uh, earliest, and some uh, scholars will argue that Mark is the earliest gospel. I happen to believe that Mark is the earliest gospel. But I think that, you know, either way you look at it, um, you do see that Luke, <coughs> for example, uh, quotes quite a bit of, of Mark. Um, and I think you see right away that, that, that Paul quotes Luke quite a bit. Uh, in his writing. So I think you can really date, I mean, if I go through this systematically for you, let me just say how I came to the conclusion that the Gospels are very early. You know, there's a couple of ways to, to, to address this kind of an issue. You know, one, the person who makes the claim has to defend their position. So I, I too had some skepticism about this though. And I wanted to answer the first question you have to answer when dealing with eyewitnesses. Was the eyewitness really there? That's a question you gotta deal with even in murders today, other cases you work with today. The first question is, were you really there? And so I want to know, because uh, lots of folks, believe it or not, as crazy as it sounds, will lie about things because it gives <laughs> a certain amount of prestige. You know, they're an eyewitness in this case and blah, blah, blah. So so we have to kind of be careful about those things. And so I looked at it and said, wow, you know, I think we have good confidence, and even the skeptics who deal with us have good confidence that the book of Acts was authored by Luke. Okay? And I think if you look at the book of Acts, you can got good confidence that it's completed sometime prior to 67 AD because you know that in the end of the story, the temple is not destroyed, no mention of that at all. Paul's still alive in Rome. Uh, usually uh, his persecution and death usually occur somewhere between 64 and 67 AD. So there's good reason to believe that the book of Acts is still an open, uh, without any, a conclusion to Paul's life. And so I, would, I think it's fair to say that, that Acts is going to be finished sometime in the mid to late 60s, but still open uh, before Paul dies. And if that's the case, okay, then you look at it and you say, all right, well, if that's the case, um, uh, You've got to really look at now his gospel, because the gospel is written prior to the book of Acts. You see how they're seen together. They're originally all part of one scroll. And it's so now you're putting the book of Acts sometime prior to 67 AD. And if you look at how uh, Paul, in writing to Timothy, for example, in 1 Timothy uh, 5.17, uh, he actually um, quotes from Luke's gospel in Luke 10.7. Actually, if you look at 1 Corinthians and how Paul uh, describes the Lord's Supper. You'll see it's nearly word for word out of Luke's gospel. The whole idea of doing this in remembrance of me is only offered in one gospel. It's in Luke's, and that's the version that Paul quotes. So there's good reason to believe that Paul has got Luke's gospel in mind and is quoting it back to his readers, like Timothy, who apparently already knew and was familiar with Luke's gospel. So when he quotes back Deuteronomy 25.4, the worker deserves his wages, uh, and uh, I'm sorry, the ox, uh, do not muzzle the ox while it's treading out the grain, and then he quotes back the worker deserves his wages from Luke 10.7 and refers to both of them as scripture. Timothy already understands it to be true. 
So you have a pretty early dating, I think, in the early 60s of Luke's gospel. And Luke is quoting out of Mark quite a bit mm. and even says that he's using eyewitness accounts to quote from. I think it's reasonable to place uh, Mark's gospel very early. Now, if that's the case, you look then at, at some of the other places where people have early identified, um, you know, Papias identifies Mark as Peter's scribe in writing the gospel of Mark. Of course, Papias' works have been destroyed. And we have to rely on Eusebius, uh, the historian. But Papias, we know, lived from 60 to 130 AD. So we have a very early dating, very early at- attribution. And I think there's some good internal reasons to believe, and I'm not going to go through all those today, sure. but there are good internal reasons to believe. But it's not just that Papias says that Mark is Peter's scribe. Irenaeus said it. Justin said it. Clement said it. Tertullian said it. The Muratorian fragment attributes it to Mark. Uh, Origen said it. Um, even the anti-Marcionite prologue says it that it is attributed to Mark. So I think that really the vast majority of evidence we have in um, uh, history affirms Mark's uh, authorship of the Gospel of Mark, for example. So when someone makes a claim that, hey, this is really late, you don't know who it is, I simply have to ask, well, on the basis of what? uh, All they can say at best is, I don't trust the robust circumstantial case from history. Yeah, and, that, and you know, and, and defense attorneys do this all the time with me. I, you're, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, you should not trust this robust circumstantial case offered by the prosecution because this one piece I'm going to pick off in this way, um, uh, and this, in this other piece I'm going to pick off in this other way, um, and uh, they will usually find ten different ways to pick off the ten pieces of evidence. Okay, mm-hmm. so either there's ten different obscure reasons why you shouldn't trust this, or there's one unifying reason that's true that you should trust it because all these things point to the same guy. Well, the same thing happens here. I think there's a very robust case, circumstantial case, to believe that Mark is actually the writer of Mark. So, yeah. so I, I think that that's and that's so. That, but the next thing is, I think, really important for me as a detective is I wanted to know was there a chain of custody that might help us to see that these are early because it seems to me that we have a history, very, very fragmented partial history through that, that identifies not only what happened to the apostles, but then what happened to um, their disciples. The apostles had students. And it's, what's interesting is that sometimes the, the students of the apostles will have their writings of their own. And in the writings that they had, they identified, they quoted from or alluded to a number of the New Testament books. So, for example, John, John teaches Ignatius, Papias, and Polycarp. And guess what? Those three, Ignatius, Papias, and Polycarp, all wrote letters or wrote about the Gospels. Hmm. So Ignatius either alludes to or quotes up to 16 different books of the New Testament. Polycarp, anywhere from like 16 to 18 books of the New Testament. So what you're seeing here is that it appears that the very first generation, I mean, you know, Papias is 35, to, I mean, Ignatius is like 35 to 117 A.D. Uh, these are very early disciples of the apostles who are themselves writing literature in which they are quoting from the scriptures. Mm-hmm. And when you see that, you realize, okay, these things are existent and they're in place early. They are being referred to by these writers as though their readers will recognize what it is they're quoting. Right. So you have a sense already that this is well received and is well um, is very has already been spread across across the the region in which the the writer is writing. And so when you follow the chain of custody, it turns out that you've got a very strong chain of custody, and that all all the books of the New Testament are firmly in place and being used by the church long before the first council affirms any canon. And that doesn't even happen until 363, 
and uh, and then long before that council took place, you've got Christians using the canon of Scripture and quoting from it, yeah, uh, naming it by name. Um, and so, yeah, there's, it's true that there are, uh, and this is what I think gives strength to this, it is true that some of these uh, eyewitnesses that are in the chain of custody actually used additional books, in addition to the books that we now know are part of the canon, The Shepherd of Hermas, other different books like this, which are much, much more devotional. But these came out because, guess what, they were determined not to be eyewitness accounts. So yeah. the whole thing comes back, even for the, for the presuppositionalists, it all comes back to, is what's in this canon... Evidential. Is it from an eyewitness? An apostolic authority. So what's interesting about the chain of custody is not so much that I believe that there should be an apostolic authority, but there is an apostolic chain of custody. Those who were given the scripture and then protected it and handed it down, and each time they handed it down, the new person they handed it to wrote about it, and guess what? They're writing about the same canon we have. Yeah. That was very powerful for me. I think the evidence is much stronger that we not only have an early uh, canon forming in the first century under the uh, during the lives of the eye, which is why it makes sense that Paul would say in First Corinthians, "Hey, if you you know I I received this the, the the entire information about the resurrection, you can still go out and talk to 500 eyewitnesses. Only a few of them have died. You can find out for yourself." He can say that because he's writing early, at a time in which the eyewitnesses were still alive. Yeah. Yeah, that's really good. I mean, so that, so that kind of gives us reason to believe that we know who wrote them. It gives us reason to believe that they were written very early within the lifetime of, uh, or very shortly after the time of Christ. Uh, one question, though, that many skeptics would have, or, or uh, one one claim that they would make, is that even if we if we uh, accept all of that, that they were written early, that we know who wrote them, um, the claim is widely made that they largely made the story up by borrowing from ancient pagan mystery religions and sort of repackaged it for first century Jewish consumption. I'm thinking of uh, the popular but really vapid uh, internet movie Zeitgeist, in which all sorts of similarities are alleged between Christ and figures like Horus and Osiris and stuff. Is, is there, in fact, evidence that the story of Jesus is just a repackaging of these myths? Well, it's interesting because you you just I just got an email from a mom whose son was in my youth group, and he was one of those kids who... Was younger, and then when we finished, I actually launched a church after this. And when I did that, he was still um, very uh, young. He hadn't been through all four years with me. Uh, and even when he was there on some of the trips, I could tell he was really not interested in some ways to, to the depth that others who were on the trip were interested. So now he's a college student, and his mom's writing me to say that he had seen Zeitgeist, and he's <laughs> convinced now that there is no God based on this this, this movie. And I, I, to me, it's, 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 it's sad because this issue or this claim that, that, uh, the pre-exi- that Jesus is just another restructuring of pre-existing mythologies is not a new one. <laughs> it's a claim that's been you know examined for the last... 180 years and over and over and over again and it's we it, it gets knocked down it, it raises its head again it gets knocked down again i think that what makes it powerful in our generation is the the kind of media presentation that can be uh, used uh to make the case uh, that this is somehow and, and i've got a few principles that i've i i had to do this when i took my kids to berkeley this was the one of the i was surprised that we had one uh speaker come in and he really argued this hmm. and i was surprised that uh Sometimes people don't train in this area to actually examine this. What I did is I went out and I purchased all the books uh, for the strong. I found the strongest similarity. I think the strongest similarity to Jesus that is made by these folks who think that you know it's all a conspiracy theory that Jesus is just a retelling of a myth is that the, the mythology of Mithras. I think Mithras is the god that, that that for the most part seems to have 
or seems to make the claim that there are more similarities. You know, he's born of a virgin on December 25th in a cave attended by shepherds. He's considered a great traveling teacher and a master. He had 12 companions or disciples. He, he promised his uh, followers immortality and he performed these miracles and sacrificed himself for world peace and was buried <laughs> in a tomb. And after three days he rose again and he was, his, his, this whole idea of his resurrection is celebrated each year. Uh, later it became known as Easter and he's called the Good Shepherd and the Lamb and the Lion, the Way, the Truth and the Light, the Logos, the Redeemer, the Savior, the Messiah, you know, they celebrated Sunday as a sacred day and even had a Eucharist, you know, or a Lord's Supper to celebrate him. These are the claims that are typically made in movies like this. Hmm. And when kids hear these, they go, oh my gosh, that does sound like Jesus. Yeah. I mean, if this guy, and you're telling me he's existing 400 years before Jesus, you know, the Persian version of the Mithras story uh, precedes the dating of Jesus. And so you go, oh my gosh, if this is true... Well, there's some, you learn as you kind of do the heavy lifting here that virtually none of that is true. Hmm. Uh, none of it is true. And as a matter of fact, Mithras is not unusual in the sense that very little, well, in Mithras' case, nothing exists anymore in written form. There are no scriptures for those who believed in the Mithras mystery religion. All we have to assess the claims of, uh, of the Mithra- Mithraism is, is our artwork, uh, murals, a few temples in which we can see some artwork, statuary, that kind of thing. We have no written documentation. What people have done, uh, and really the people who did this work were biased, um, they, they decided that, that there are certain truths about Mithras based on the artwork. So, for example, when you see uh, Mithras displayed with the 12 signs of the zodiac around his head, People then make a claim well, he had 12 followers, 12 disciples. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that's the sense in which you see 12 disciples being mentioned. When you say he's born of a virgin, well, Mithras was, was emerged from the side of a mountain, a rock mountain, leaving behind a void, a cave, when he emerged from the mountain. So I guess you could say he's born <laughs> in a cave of a virgin in the sense that he's not born in the regular way that humans are born, and behind him there's a cave. But, I mean, please, the similarities are not what they claim. Mm-mm. So here's the kind of, uh, uh, when I deal with our young people, training him, I ask him to first take a closer look at whatever myth it is that they're saying is similar to Jesus. And so when you look at it really closely, these mythologies, you're going to see they're not born of a virgin the way that Jesus was born to Mary. Even the stories of Isis, Osiris, all these Horus, these different uh, gods, the similarity in their birth to Jesus and Mary is there's no similarity. Yeah. Um, they didn't live a life that was sim- live a life that was uh, similar to Jesus in the way they lived it. They didn't hold those titles that they attribute to Jesus. How in the world would you know what titles were attributed to Mithras when there isn't a single written document about Mithras? Um, so that's the first thing. Examine the myths closer. Second, examine the strategy that these people may use when they're trying to make comparisons. They're typically looking for things they can they can make similar and cherry-picking them. Yeah. If they see anything even remotely similar, they only mention those things. You know, you and I, Chris, are very similar and, and in some ways if we just isolate on those areas where we're similar. I suppose I could describe you in a way that makes you sound like me if I only <laughs> mention those things which have, we have in common. Sure. But it doesn't negate your existence even though, or my existence, even though I might make that case. So then the third thing I tell people to do is, is, is to take a closer look at what the expectations are of the people who invented the mythologies. What I think is very powerful about this whole thing, Chris, is that when you look at those uh, claims they make about Mithras, you know, that he's, uh, you know, um, uh, considered a great 
traveling teacher and master. Okay, well, that wasn't really part of the Mithras tradition. We don't know anything about that part of his tradition. But you can see why someone might, in creating a, a god, uh, attribute this to this god. The idea that if there is a god, mm. he would be a great teacher, he would be a master. And so what you see are just the natural attributes you would give a god that are typically given to pre-Christian mythologies. Well, that shouldn't surprise us. What, is, what does Paul do? Uh, you know, when he goes and you see it in the book of Acts, Acts 17, 22, when he goes to Mars Hill and he says, in essence, to the, to, to the Athenians, he says, you folks have got all these statues of gods. You, you, you don't really know the God. There's the real God, the true God. I'm here to show you the true God. But as it turns out, he's basically saying, you got some things right and some things wrong. Let me tell you the truth about God. So he's recognizing that in the world in which he is preaching, there are lots of folks with notions about God based on their natural expectations, which you would, you know, God has written himself into our hearts. He's created us in his image. It's not, it shouldn't surprise any of us that we all lean toward wondering what God is like. Mm. And we create stories in which we get some of those attributes correct, as it turns out, but not everything. And then eventually God is going to reveal himself to us and we're going to find out what we got right and what we got wrong. And so it shouldn't surprise you at all. That, that these, that there are some similarities. I would expect there to be some similarities. And then I would say, uh, that if you look at it from that perspective, it'll help you to sort through the mythologies and how similar or dissimilar they are. You know, it's interesting. Uh, one day, my son, I, I, I tell this story, now he doesn't care, he's 22, but it was funny. <laughs> first discovered, I think he was, you know, just a young guy and he was, we had this bathroom reader, okay, that was in the, in the bathroom. It was like a, uh, it was kind of like a, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? That uh, Ripley's Believe It or Not kind mm. of thing. You know? It was one of those readers. And so he s- discovers in this, um, this weird coincidence. And he told me about it. So I went out and actually bought the book. It's a book called Futility from Buccaneer Books in New York. It was ma- written in, uh, printed in 1898. 1890, remember the date. And here's what this tells the story. It, it mentions um, um, a British ocean liner that's about 800 feet long. This ocean liner weighs over 60,000 tons. It could carry about 3,000 passengers. It had a top cruising speed of 24 knots, had three propellers, and about 20 lifeboats. Well, this ocean liner in this book hits a iceberg, <laughs> an iceberg on its maiden voyage in the month of April. And it tore a huge opening in the starboard side. Uh, uh, and, and then it, it sank, uh, along with about 2,000 passengers. Now, that is eerily, eerily, everything I told you is identical in information to what happened to the Titanic. I'm sure there's lots of differences between the book, uh, between the boat that's written about in Futility. It's also called the wreck, the wreck of the Titan, because the book mentioned in the Futility is called the Titan. Hmm. So I imagine <clears throat> if a thousand years from now, <clears throat> pardon me, you were to discover this book and knew that there was a, a ship that was reportedly sunk by an iceberg called the Titanic, you might argue, because this all occurs in the book a dozen years before the Titanic was even begun, to, work was even started on the, on the Titanic. Hmm. So you you might argue, well, the Titanic isn't trustworthy because there's this <laughs> book that exists before the Titanic, which is way too similar. It's just a borrowed mythology. Well, a lot of it is because the writer is living in an environment in which he sees the evolution of these kinds of, of ocean liners, and he's able to imagine, given what he sees in front of him, what could happen, and he happens to guess a few things right. Hmm. It does not then negate the the, uh, the the truth of the Titanic at all. 
It simply means that he's in a place where he's thinking carefully and expecting certain things and is able to project forward. And I think the people who who are uh, starved for God, who are designed by God, wired for God, imagine God prior to his appearance in a way that will get a few things right. Yeah. It won't get everything right, but it will get a few things right. And so that shouldn't surprise us. Yeah, that, that's all really, really good. Um, and, you know, and then one other point that I might make is that some of the most, uh, uh, some of the, the strongest similarities are in fact later developments in those myths that seem to borrow from Christianity, not the other way around. Would you say that's true? No, that's a great point. It's one of those things I actually talk about. You know, I list f- like five approaches to this. One, uh, examine the myths closer, examine the strategy closer, examine the expectations closer, examine the influence closer. Because mm-hmm. the influence, it turns out in Mithras, is that, you know, that first uh, Mithraic uh, uh, movement in, in Persia is later followed by the real robust Mithra- uh, Mith- uh, Mithraic, Mithraic movement, which occurs in Rome. And so it's a competing uh, um, a source of, of for believers in Rome, and, and most of what you see in terms of the celebration of the Eucharist, the, the celebration on on Sundays, a lot of of of, uh, of Mithraism is borrowing from Christianity. As a matter of fact, the, the the most we have written about Mithric believers is written by first, second, and third century Christians <laughs> who are describing what these folks are doing. Mm. And so it's after the Christian era that most of this behavior actually develops anyway. And then they'll point to it and say, well, see how similar it is. Well, no kidding. They borrowed from us. We didn't borrow from them. Yeah. And so this is what you get. But here's what was disturbing about it. When I was in Rome, it is true that some of the, the foremost and, um, uh, some of the foremost basilicas, uh, Catholic basilicas, Christian uh, churches, early first century, second century churches, are built on the foundations of Mithraic temples. Wow. So as you dig down, you're under the basilica, now you go down one layer, here's the original church built in the first, second century, go down one more layer, now we're in a Mithraic temple. And you're going, wow, this is bizarre. Well, isn't it? So I think you can see how the skeptic's going to say, well, see, this just evolves from, from, but but of course what, what what first century Christians did was as they sought to kind of change the culture they literally it's kind of like you know if I'm a Walmart I might buy out every Target location as if Target closes or <laughs> Kmart for example I might buy every Kmart location because I'm going to take the people who previously shopped at Kmart and and, and kind of assume them into our <clears throat> into our uh, our uh, our sphere of influence and this is what I think first century Christians were doing yeah definitely so. Well, so that leaves me with one more question before we start to wrap up. Um, you know, I think you've made a great case for why we can trust who wrote the Gospels, that we can trust that they were written early, that they weren't inventions based on pagan myths. But even if all of that is true, what reasons do you think that we have to believe that the um, that what the so-called eyewitnesses claim happened did in fact happen? I mean, somebody might say, well, they could have made the story up, they could have embellished or hallucinated. I mean, why should we believe that they are genuine, reliable eyewitness accounts? And furthermore, why should we believe that they are inspired or God-breathed? Okay, good, great, great questions. Let me just take it first of all. You know you're going to get a, a kind of an evidential response from me. So, that's all right. <laughs> so, so you know that's for how I'm wired. And, and I think this is, this is the other thing, too. We talk about the breadth of different approaches to apologetics. The one thing I would never do is deny somebody else their approach. I, I really believe that God has given all of us different gifts and that there all of us are needed to do this work. And so I often will times we'll talk about it on the podcast that I you know we don't need any more million dollar apologists, you know, five or six guys who are out there with all the influence <laughs> who are trying to do the work. We need a million one dollar apologists and we yeah. need those because God has given you gifts, Chris, to reach people that I can't reach. And 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 the the presupposition also is going to reach people that I can't reach. And God has put us all there 
there, and it's, I think it's why you see it in Ephesians 4.11, and you've got, you know, some of us are pastors. Some, each of us has been given certain gifts to do certain jobs to equip believers to do the work of ministry. Yeah. And I think that my gifts are different than yours, and they're no better or no worse. And so I try to be very humble about, uh, I don't make judgments on other people's work. Yes, God's going to work that way. God's going to work this way. I don't think these are essentials we should divide over. I think these are just the way God's gifted us. So I think all of these are important uh, tools for us to use. Uh, so when you talk to me about the issue, why do I trust that, that this is still true, even though I might be able to date it early? Uh, a lot of it is that there's – let me just go back to my background in, uh, in law enforcement to kind of at least tell you why uh, I, I land where I land. Sure. I think that there are things I'm looking for in eyewitnesses that I have to make sure are in place. Uh, we talked a minute ago about, you know, were the witnesses even present? So I had to spend some time um, looking to see, you know, are they – uh, in the first century, are, are these really the true early, dated early enough to be eyewitness accounts? Were they there to begin with? The second one is, are the witnesses supported externally? So if I got a witness that says something happens, but I've got tons of other evidence that, that indicates it couldn't have happened that way, I'm going to get suspicious. So I am looking at the eyewitness accounts and saying, hey, are the eyewitness accounts um, archaeologically verifiable? Are there some things outside the record that give me at least confidence that there are truth statements being made in there? Doesn't mean all of it's going to be true. It may be that what what, what uh, people did was write a kind of useful fiction around historical data, and if that's the case, you know I got a problem, right? Mm. So I have some stuff that seems miraculous and supernatural in the scriptures, in addition to stuff that just looks like it's identifying archaeological cities I can find later. So I still have some, might have some doubt about part of the statement, right? But I think that I've got to examine: is there if I've got something that's outside of scripture that that falsifies outside of the eyewitness rather that falsifies what the eyewitness said? I've got to take that seriously. But a third thing I'm looking at, well, one, one other aspect I'm looking at is four things total. But the third thing is: are the witnesses honest, and have they been? I can judge that by have they been honest in the past? Uh, so I'm looking at the things that the scripture writers write. I'm saying, hey. You know, are they, um, like Luke, for example, has he been honest about other aspects, uh, which we know from the culture and doing some historical work in the culture that these people really lived? He mentions lots of folks uh, who are governors, who are different leaders, uh, and the book of Acts. And are, are we able to verify that those are truthful statements? And I'm looking for that kind of stuff. But the last thing is, and that's where I think it comes down to answering your question is, do the witnesses have some type of ulterior motive that might be responsible for why they are telling me a lie. Hmm. And typically, there are only three motives behind any crime I've ever worked, be it a robbery, a burglary, or murders. There are only three things that motivate humans to do what they shouldn't do. One is sexual lust uh, or relationship issues, but, you know, uh, sexually driven. Uh, lots of murders occur for these reasons. You know, you've got my, you, you, you've slept with my girlfriend, you, you've taken my wife. These kinds of things drive people to do things they shouldn't do. Two, financial greed. Uh, there's a robbery that's taking place. There's something you have that I want. Three, the pursuit of power. Those are the three things that get us in trouble every time. Every church leader who's fallen has fallen for one of those three reasons. Pursuit of power, sexual lust, uh, financial greed. These are the motives that I see that make witnesses unreliable. Are they doing this because there's some financial gain in it? <clears throat> if it's just a matter of power, they get, <clears throat> pardon me, a certain notoriety as a result of being an eyewitness in this case. I've got to look and make sure that those motives aren't in the package for each witness and so they can be trusted. And if there doesn't mean that, that they can have a motive and not be trusted. It's possible they could have one of these motives but still be telling the truth. But certainly I've got to look at them sideways a little bit if I find that this motive is driving them. Hmm. So I look at the 12 apostles and I say, okay, what is it they gained from this testimony. 
<laughs> did they gain any of these three things? Are any, is it possible that any of these things, these three things could have motivated them to tell the lie? I just don't see it. Now, yeah. what I ended up doing was purchasing behind me, I'm, I'm sitting in my, in my study right now. Behind me, I've got, um, oh gosh, probably about, uh, 60 books I purchased last year. Every, uh, as, as far back as I could go, both the secondary and primary sources for the life of the, and deaths of the apostles. Because I really want to do this work and demonstrate this at some point. Uh, I've done enough to know this is true right now, but I really want to do a detailed section on the website that demonstrates that the apostles died, except for John, a martyr's death. And then while that means nothing for you and I, Chris, you and I might die for Christ and be wrong, because we weren't there to see it. Hmm. It does mean something in the lives of original eyewitnesses, however, because to say that they know the lie is a lie, yet Every one of them died for it. You've got to be able to argue this is a vast conspiracy that's motivated by one of those three motives. I don't see the motives. And number two, I see no ancient document of any kind that negates the claims uh, that are made by historians that these 12, these 11, died a martyr's death. It's not as though we have to balance, well, someone says that Peter died this way, but we got another claim that says he was an old man selling shoes in, in uh, Madrid, <laughs> and so I can't really trust which of these. There are no counterclaims. Yeah. The claims of history are, are solid and unified. Also, if you've ever worked a conspiracy, you know how hard conspiracies are to maintain. They're ridiculously hard to maintain. Mm-hmm. I've worked conspiracies, and once you separate conspirators and give one the reason to believe that the other one has snitched them off, you see the conspiracy break quickly. The best conspiracies involve the least number of conspirators and occur over only very short periods of time. So, for example, if you and I were going to go do a robbery, uh, just two people involved, that's the best way to go. And as soon as we get done doing the robbery, I need to kill you because now the, <laughs> the conspiracy is short. So yeah. it's a two-person conspiracy that's very short. We're arguing here that this is a lie, and these people went to their death for a lie when they were separated by all over the known world, had no way to communicate quickly to one another. And when pressed, no one gave up anything other than the story that Jesus performed these miracles, died on a cross, was resurrected and ascended into heaven. This is the claim of the original eyewitnesses. Now, you, I've looked at all the alternatives, the possible alternatives, that they were hallucinating, that they were, you know, all the things we typically see that Josh McDowell made famous, right? The, the whole uh, four or five ways you could, you could argue this. Mm. I see no way that any of them is as reasonable as they simply saw this. Now, the only way they simply saw this is not reasonable is if we begin with the position of philosophical naturalism and we reject anything miraculous to begin with. Then you're right. The resurrection is not reasonable. But the whole examination here, it seems to me, is an examination about whether or not something supernatural exists. God. Yeah. So you can't begin the examination by saying nothing supernatural can exist. You've already circumvented the investigation from the... It's like saying, hey, I don't know who killed this guy, but it's got to be an Asian male. Well, <laughs> yeah. I'm just telling you, I just got to be an Asian male. Well, then I've just circumvented anybody else who comes along, even if they are a good candidate, because I have a bias against super uh, Asian male or toward Asian males. Mm. It's stupid. You just don't do it that way. So I had to at least have my eyes open in the beginning of this to say, let's at least leave the possibility of the supernatural on the table. And if you do that, the best explanation of the lives and deaths of the apostles is that they saw what they said they saw. 
Yeah, I think that's excellent. And, and one more point that I'll add that I don't know if you find this as powerful as I do, but, um, you know, the three, the three synoptic gospels, which record Jesus' uh, prediction of the destruction of the temple, um, you know, 40 years before it happened and, and in, in precise detail, especially when the Jews wouldn't have possibly imagined that the glorious temple could be destroyed. To me, that, that prophetic, um, accuracy is really powerful, I think, as well. Yeah, you know, I think you're right. And we, we did this a little bit and we looked at the, the scripture, the power of the book series we did in the Bible section at Please Convince Me. One of the things was, you know, is we looked at ways you can confirm the truth. The fact that number one, we believe it's been faithfully transmitted, both New and Old Testament. We studied both of those. Then we believe it's verified by archaeology, both Old and New Testament. And we show that. Then we believe it's been ver- and confirmed by, pro- by prophecy. And one of the things we talk about in the New Testament prophecy is that exact uh, prophecy of the temple, uh, yeah. that, you know, the Jerusalem and the temple will be destroyed. It is uh, quite a stretch. Now, of course, as the skeptic, I would argue, well, that's that's late. <laughs> that, that's been added, you know, of course, because what's driving me is not a, a, evidence. In other words, um, maybe manuscript evidence that shows it's written late, because there is none. Right. What's motivating me here to say is there's no way that prophecy is real, because that's supernatural. So I'm just going to deny it on its face. But I would think you'd have to have some type of manuscript evidence to be able to make that claim. That's the same way you'd have to have the same, some kind of manuscript evidence to make the claim that, you know, uh, there's no known original authors here. Most of the time, they'll say that, Chris, because they know that there are second and third and fourth century gospels that are falsely attributed, that appear late and are falsely attributed to eyewitnesses. And so they'll say, well, if that's being done in the second and third century, and we know that's being done, we know those are late editions, then why do we trust that the first, you know, the, the first century documents haven't occurred the same way? But they have no evidence in, in and of themselves in the first century documents to make the case. Yeah. So, anyway. No, definitely. Well, I really appreciated your time today, and, and as we begin to wrap things up, um, this is something I do with every guest that I have. Is there any sort of parting message you'd like to leave us with? Um, what most would you like to see us take away from our discussion? Yeah, I think all of us, you and me uh, together, you know, we, we do these podcasts, right? And at some point, I, I bet you peek over at your, your listenership and you kind of wonder, you know, how many people are actually even interested in <laughs> apologetics? You know, you know that, it, that, that I don't care how, pick the best, uh, like Ravi Zacharias, he probably has the best li- listenership of any apologetics, maybe him and William Lane Craig. These are the guys who get huge listenership on their podcast. Compare them to Joel Olstein. Forget it. Okay, they're <laughs> yeah. being a fraction, a millis, you know, a, a minor fraction compared to to other uh, Christian uh, or Christian based or spiritual shows that are out there. I mean, uh, Oprah Winfrey is doing a lot better than anybody else, <laughs> and that is frustrating for you and I because not because we're, we're like, hey, listen to me, I've got something important to say. Right. It's not that at all. It's that we don't understand why it is that um, case making is not a more robust part of the life of the church. And that's the thing that we pine over. We say, gosh, you know, I, I, I just, what bothers me is that you, I mean, I just did a podcast a couple of weeks back on 30 days, this episode, this show that. I listened that, to that, yeah. Well, you know, and it's, it saddens me that, that, that uh, sometimes you get a good representative, and, but they'll put these people into the, to the, to the public eye who make the claims of being Christian. Of course they are, and they're saved Christians. But being a saved Christian is one thing. Being able to defend your position is another. Yeah. And I've known really good pastors who I love deeply who don't need to be sitting with, with Sam Harris or Richard Dawkins because they're <laughs> going to get eaten alive. Yes. You know, and, and so my, my whole point of view on this is, is that, you know, it's, I tell this last, I was working with a youth group this last week, all young high schoolers, and I said, hey, you know, all of you in this room are saved Christians. I know where you are. I know your confession of faith that you're saved. I want you now to be able to make an impact. And there's a difference between being saved and being impactful. 
being a powerful tool that God can use, you've got to prepare yourself and stuff. All of us would say that. Either we're going to go to seminary, we're going to do something to prepare ourselves so that God can use us in a powerful way. And all we need to do as Christians is become good case makers. Yeah. That to be able to say, here's why we believe what we believe. And, and you know, and, and unfortunately we're dealing with the world around us that's very skeptical, that's very evidential. And at some point, I have no problem using the scripture as evidence. But I have to make a case for why it is evidence yeah. to those people who will only accept things they see as evidence. And so I think that it's worth the time spending to make that case. And, and that's, I think, what my, my, my encouragement is for everyone who, who, but of course, I suspect, Chris, that the people who are listening to our podcast are folks who are already convinced of this. <laughs> so, so how is it we, we, we reach those who really don't understand the need for apologetics or the role of apologetics in the church? And even what you're doing, uh, in terms of, but not always are your podcasts about, uh, uh, apologetics for use with the skeptic. A lot of times you and I are doing podcasts that are about, making a case for what we ought to believe as Christians. It's apologetics used inside the church, not just mm. outside the church. Why do we believe that's important? And, you know, th- th- this is what I think I want to encourage everyone to get a foot in the game. I mean, yeah. there's lots of ways of doing this. There's podcasts you can do. If that technology is above your head, start a blog. Uh, get get in the world doing defending your faith, studying and becoming a better defender of your faith. And I think we're going to see a change. God's going to use that. I mean, God can do anything he wants to do any way he wants to do it. But I think there's some of us he's going to use in this regard. And it might be that someone listening to this right now is one of those people. So I hope they take the, take the challenge. Yeah, me too, definitely. All right, well, how, one more time, why don't you plug uh, your, your websites, uh, tell my listeners how they can get plugged into your ministries. Well, I appreciate the opportunity to do that. I'm going to do the same thing tonight, and I, I podcast usually on Monday afternoons, and I'll be uh, talking about you today. Oh, um, but I appreciate that. Pleaseconvinceme.com, uh, and it's just pleaseconvinceme, all one word, dot com, and we also are at dot org, but we've got uh, both of those. And then we're also at uh, Answers for Atheists, uh, with the number four or the word for, either way, AnswersforAtheists.com. And you can see there all the links, kind of like you guys have too. You know, you can see that we've got links to our blog, which is on our face page. Uh, I've got a really interesting set of bloggers at Please Convince Me Blog. I've got a, uh, a biologist. I've got um, people who are really smart, uh, educated, but maybe are not working in any field like housewives. And I've got uh, another officer working there. And I've also got a district attorney who writes the blog often. So you get a really interesting perspective of four or five of us who are blogging on that blog. Uh, so I invite you to check that out. And then, of course, all the links are there for our Facebook pages. And yeah, what you said is true. You know, it, it, being connected on Facebook is very powerful because I get to see what's going on in your life. I get a chance to see who you are. Yeah. And, uh, and that's just kind of fun to be able to do that. And so we have that also linked on the homepage of face of uh, please convince me dot, uh, dot com. So hope that helps everyone find us. Great. All right. Well, thanks again for joining me today. Well, you're so welcome, Chris. Looking forward to talking to you again in the future. All right. Well, I thoroughly enjoyed that interview and learned a lot from it, and I hope that you did too. Go check out pleaseconvinceme.com and answersforatheists.com and subscribe to Jim's podcast. It's a great resource that you'll benefit greatly from. Next week, I'm excited to be joined by Mike Abendroth of No Compromise Radio, and we'll be talking about the gift of tongues. Uh, So I hope you'll join me for that and subsequent episodes of the The Apologetics Podcast. Until then... (laughs) 